If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Galatians chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at two short verses. One that we talked about last week in verse 22, and one that we have not talked yet about in verse 23. I thought it appropriate this week, given the nature of the past Sunday schools that we've been working through. It, you know, four weeks ago, we, or three weeks ago, we talked about Calvin, and then we talked about his, his doctrine, uh, specifically his doctrine around salvation. Just this morning, we talked about Whitfield and, and the great split that he had with the Wesleys over Calvinism. So it's important that we look at verses that talk about our enslavement, our imprisonment to sin. I want to impress upon everyone here that this is not some sort of superfluous theological speculation that we're doing this morning. This isn't the same as medieval theologians arguing over how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. The right answer, 525. (laughs) Bet you weren't expecting that this morning. But it's not superfluous. It is an important theology. It's important that we understand why it is that we preach this, why we teach this. It's practical. Although we would first say that it's immensely scriptural, and I hope to get that point across this morning, but it's practical. It's important that we believe this and we trust in it because it grounds and undergirds all that we say about the gospel. I do want to say even before we begin, we've made this remark before, but I want to say that when we talk about Calvinism and doctrines of grace, it is not found in our statement of faith for the very purpose that that statement of faith is meant to outline what the gospel is and what we need to be able to partner with one another. We can partner with other churches and we can partner with one another in this church without everybody agreeing with every word that I say. And although that's true, well, that's true. You should have a good reason for not trusting what I say, which comes from scripture and not just the bald face statement of, I don't like it. As I tell my kids, I don't care if you like the things I say or not. I care whether you know that they're true or not and whether they are scriptural. So let us go then to speak of our enslavement to sin from these two short verses. Galatians 3.22, Paul writes, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I have a couple of thoughts on these two short verses. The first is that our slavery to sin is a forced state. Our slavery to sin is a forced state. You will notice here that what Paul says is not simply that you have imprisoned yourselves or that you have found yourself, you woke up one day and you were imprisoned, but that scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The very declaration of God imprisoned you in sin. It imprisoned everything. And that here was not just everyone, although everyone is included. You are included. No matter who you are, no matter where you were born, no matter how many good things you have done in your life, no matter how noble your birth might have been, you were enslaved in your sin. And it's the declaration of God that has made that so. This is not just some sort of knowledge of God. This isn't Paul saying God foresaw 
that you would be enslaved. And so he made it clear in his word. It is a declaration that you would be enslaved and always would be enslaved. This was his declaration before time ever began. Now you'll notice that what Paul says here is that scripture imprisoned, and I'm talking about slavery. We will find that scripture uses many metaphors for this. The idea that Paul thought that we were enslaved under sin is found not so much here for slavery, but in chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, As long as he is a child, even the heir is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. And then again in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. Scripture has imprisoned, it has enslaved, it has put everything under the power and the reign of sin. And that includes the law. This is one of the very things that Paul is pointing out about the law. The law has no power for you to overcome your own sin. It can tell you what is right without giving you any sort of fuel to overcome that. And because you are entrapped in sin, because God has placed you and entrapped you in sin, therefore, it is forced upon you by God himself. Notice what Paul says, though, at the end of verse 22. Scripture imprisoned everything under sin with a purpose, It wasn't for no good end. It wasn't for no right means, but for a purpose so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There is no free will then. You you don't get to turn away from this slavery. This is enslaving over your free will. But it is by grace that you can overcome this. Even this is talked about. It is an overcoming that comes from outside of who you are. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He is our redeemer. He has purchased us back. He has come and saved us by no good means of our own. It is not because we wanted it. It is not because we called for it. It is not because we deserved it. But it is solely because Jesus Christ was gracious in redeeming us from that. Paul in Romans 3 beginning in verse 23, says these famous words. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just or he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Famous words. Paul says, God overlooked the former sins. The law, who allowed for the covering of sins by blood and goats, that covered sin, but it could not ever remove sin from his people. God overlooked those things, but now in Christ, he is both just in what he has done, and he is the justifier of all those who have faith in Christ. But listen to the purpose then. What Paul says next is overlooked, but it is incredibly important. Then, what becomes of our boasting? The purpose of what Paul says there is to get at that. What becomes of your boasting? Where is your pride? What do you get to say that you have done? Do you get to say that you have believed, that you've you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, that you have overcome the slavery that surrounds you and encompasses you? He says, no, what becomes of your boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
faith is, of anything else, a demonstration that it is not you who does the saving, but you are entrusting yourself to somebody else to save you. You are enslaved to sin, and that slavery is a forced state by God. Secondly, our slavery to sin is a forgetful state. It is a forgetful state. Paul talks about this time before faith came in verse 23, and he says, We were held captive under the law. Under the law, we were guarded by the law. We were guarded under the law. Something along those lines. This guarding can sometimes be for good. It can be protective. No doubt the law, as we talked about last week, had some sort of protective function in the old age. But the law also is a reminder, a relentless reminder of our own sinfulness and our own captivity to sin. Every single year that high priest had to cleanse himself before he went to make cleansing for the people of God. Even in the book of the law, in Deuteronomy, we have this sort of reminder, the most famous passage of which might be Deuteronomy 6, where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house And when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Why? Why should they be everywhere? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you shouldn't need a reminder to love him. Why is that reminder placed everywhere so that when you rise, when you walk, when you look another one in the face, when you talk to your kids, when you breathe, you are reminded of these things? Why? He says later, just verses later in verse 12, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst and is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. He knew his people were forgetful. He knew that they would forget their sin. He knew that they would forget their slavery. And so he said, every time you wake up, every time you lie down, every time you think a thought, this should be in the front of your mind that I am your God. Our slavery to sin is easily forgotten. I was reminded of the movie Shawshank Redemption when I was thinking through this. There's a beautiful scene in that where he loves Andy Dufresne has been wrongly convicted of murder and he's serving a sentence in Shawshank up in in Maine. And as he does so, he is a very clever fellow. And the warden finds out and so he gives him privileges and Andy's helping him out as he goes through his time in prison. And as a very refined fellow, he loves a good opera and he comes across a record player as he's serving one day in a very sort of privileged role. And the guard has left him and gone to the lavatory. And so he finds this record and he puts it on and he puts it over the PA system for everyone to hear. And he locks the guard in the bathroom and he locks the door to the office so no one could get in. And for minutes, Mozart plays over this correctional facility. The narrator says, and for the briefest of moments, 
every last man at Shawshank felt free. Not one of them liked opera, mind you, but they all felt free until that guard broke the door down and threw Andy in solitary confinement for a month. The guard is there to remind him, you're not free. You're never free while you're here. You might think you're free. You might moments of imaginative fantasy think yourself free, but friend, you are not free. You are saddled to your sin. Sin envelops us. It's all around us. It's like asking a fish what the water feels like. He doesn't know. It's his everyday experience. And because it's our everyday experience, because it is so surrounding us, it is easy to forget that we are enslaved to our sin. Thirdly, our slavery to sin is a foul state. It is foul. The whole reason why Paul picks up this particular metaphor, it is a metaphor. The reason why he picks up this particular metaphor is because it's meant to be distasteful. The other metaphors are just as distasteful. No one wants to be a slave. Now, slavery back in the Greco-Roman times was not what American slavery was. We have to be very clear about that. But even given all of that, it was clearly not something that people signed up for. I bet you that they would have signed up for slavery before they signed up for imprisonment, and they would have done that before death. And each one of these things is used as metaphors for how sin acts upon us. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are imprisoned in them. We are enslaved to them. It is a foul state. As much as we want to try and change death and we want to try and change sin to something that is so normal, it's okay. To err is human. To sin is normal. Death is normal. We don't have to find sort of this promulgation of the idea that sin is okay in X-rated lyrics by rap artists. We can find it in G-rated movies by Disney. The circle of life, it's perfectly natural for you to die and you become food and you can see your father up in the stars. It's all a lie. It's not natural, it's not okay, and it's not good. Paul picks this particular metaphor because it's supposed to be distasteful to us. We should want to spit this enslavement out of our mouth instead of relishing it, relishing how we're all flawed and somehow find beauty in that. There isn't beauty in that. The beauty in that is our being put back together by a gracious God. It isn't natural, even if it's normal. It is ugly. It is evil. It is the father of disaster of death, of disease, of famine, of hatred. Sin, our sin, the sins of our fathers are the cause of all of it. And our enslavement keeps us here to it. It keeps us to the whim of a world that hates us now and fights against us. It destroys our bodies. It causes hair to fall out of our head and cancer to grow instead. It causes relationships to be broken up in sinfulness. It causes all of the evil and hatred and worthiness of our destruction in the world, it comes from this. Never give in to the lie that somehow your sin is, is okay. Our slavery to sin is a foul state. It is a bad state to be in. Fourthly, our slavery to sin is a futile state. 
It is a futile state. Notice what he says. We were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith, until Christ would come to rescue us, until Jesus showed up to bring us out of the present evil age. We were stuck in our sin. There is no way to get out of it. And while imprisonment, you might think, well, I can always escape a prison. There are other metaphors that are used like death. Ephesians 2, 1 and then four and five, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you can think, okay, well, what Paul really means by you were dead in your trespasses and sins is that eventually those trespasses and sins would lead to your death, right? And they will. It's true. You can read it that way. It's true. Listen to what he says in verses four and five, though. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, for no other reason than the very fact that he loved you, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You say, okay, well, that alive it means the same thing that the death does. It doesn't mean that we, we're actually more alive than we were before. What it, what it really means is that we were going to die and now we're going to be alive and he's just bringing it together in us today and presently. Maybe. But that's also the language of resurrection. That's also the language of being dead and now becoming alive. And there's a lot of things dead people can do. They can disintegrate in the ground. They can haunt your memories, but they can't bring themselves back from the dead. Ezekiel 37. Beautiful picture of Ezekiel standing in front of a valley of bones that have been left, desecrated, dried, as dead as bones can be. God says, speak to the wind and have the wind come upon them and make them alive. And he hears the rattling of the bones together as they start to move. And he sees flesh come upon them and he sees sinews connecting the bones together. And he, he sees them stand up and then he calls upon the breath again to come down and to fill their lungs and they come alive. God says this in Ezekiel 37 verses 11 through 14. Then God said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. You are in a futile state. Your enslavement to sin is the same thing as being dead in your trespasses and sins. You cannot enact your own salvation. There is nothing you can do to get out of this slavery. The whole picture of slavery in Egypt is a picture of a people who were unable, outside of God's intervention in their lives and in the lives of the people of Egypt, to remove themselves from that situation. They were hopeless in Egypt and ready to be crushed. If only God hadn't stepped in, they would have found themselves there. You cannot free yourselves from this. This is what Jesus means when he talks to Nicodemus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a 
second time into his mother's womb and be born? Listen, Nicodemus isn't an idiot. He's not dumb. He understands what Jesus is saying. And he remarks, that remark is not to say, I don't get what you're saying, I'm an idiot. It's to say, I understand perfectly well what you're saying, but what you're asking for is impossible. How, How is somebody to be born again? You can turn over a new leaf, you can try and remake yourself, but how are you to be born again? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You cannot simply go back to the law. You can't simply try to make yourself a little bit more religious or a little bit better. You can't decide that you're going to believe a little bit more. It is an outside act of God upon you. You must be born from above. There is one thing that dead people can't do that babies have in common, and that is will themselves to do anything. You don't will yourself to be born. No one was like a pre-uterus thing and said, I'd like to be born today. No one does that. It is an act of God, completely passive on your part. God has said, I will bring you forward. John 1, 12 through 13, but all who did receive him, that is Jesus who came, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, yes, he did because they believed, right? No, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You are in a futile state and if God does not act upon you, if God does not will you, to come to life, you will not. Your slavery is a futile state. But our slavery to sin need not be a forever state. It is not something that needs to entrap you forever, for faith has come. Jesus has shown up to rescue us. He has come to free us from our sins. Romans 7, 21 through 8, 4. Paul is talking about the law, how he wants to do what is good, but every time he wants to do what is good, he ends up doing what is evil with himself. And so he says this in 7, 21. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says, who will save me? I cannot, I cannot get myself to work how I want to. I'm enslaved to the sin. I'm captivated to it. If God doesn't save me, then I have no salvation. And he says, who will save me? Wretched man that I am. But Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has been raised again. And Paul is indeed saved. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in a likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ has come and he has freed you that by believing in him, you may have everlasting life and not be condemned in your sin. Your slavery to sin is not a forever state. For those who believe and who entrust themselves to the Lord, there is salvation. And so with John Whitfield, we would offer an invitation to anyone who needs to know and trust in the Lord to trust. We believe that it is God's acting on him, but we also listen to the words of Jesus who said, you don't know where the wind blows. I don't know where the wind blows. I don't know who the Spirit is moving in. I don't know how the Spirit works. That dude's a mystery to me. But I do know this. We do see how he acts. We do see the results of him blowing. And that result is faith. Do you want to know if you're one of the elect? Do you want to know if you are one that God has counted as his from the beginning of the world? Believe. So friends, it is that simple. We are enslaved to sin, but the way out of that slavery is to entrust yourselves into the hands of God through Jesus Christ, who died your sin penalty to pay and was raised to give you newness of life. By trusting yourself to him and believing in him, you can be freed from your sin. Does that mean you're going to be sinless? No, it does not. But it does mean that sin will no longer enslave you. No longer will it have the pull over you that it did. Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Believe in him, and he will set you free. Let us pray. Father God, in your kindness and your goodness, you have come to us and you have given us salvation that we could not gain or earn on our own. We are weak, powerless, and worthless in your sight. Yet you have loved us all the same and in your love, you have died in our place that you might redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language for your own glory and for our own good, even though we have done nothing to deserve this. It is all a work that you have done, Father. Even faith in us is nothing but a gift. Repentance is nothing but a gift. In our own sinful states, we would reject these things for our hearts are deceitfully wicked. But you are a kind and a good God. And you show your glory and your power over sin by calling us to you. And so you have done. May your people come to call upon your name. May they always linger in your grace and in your glory so that they might give you glory and honor forever and ever at the foot of your throne, singing your praises and casting their crowns before you. We ask, Father, that you enliven us this day, that we might live lives passionately by your grace, not by our own doing, to walk in your spirit, that we might be holy before you, and that through our works through our speaking and preaching your spirit might be pleased to move in the lives of others to call them to faith in the lord do this father for your great name we ask this in jesus name amen